Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Emmanuel Science Podcast. I'm Miss Wells and this week not only was I a teacher but I actually turned into a vet for all of 10 minutes. Who else are we joined by today? Wait, 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 wait a second. Introductions are on hold, please tell the story. Okay, it was a break time, quite handily timed. So around 10 to 10, I would say. And my cat comes through, the cat flap from outside, with one eye open and one eye shut. So not great in the kind of lockdown period that we're in. Don't really want to be going to a vet at the moment. And that's not normal for cats, right? No. Yeah, it's not, not, your cat doesn't just wink at you. <laughs> one eye totally, totally shut. Um, so I thought, right, I'll bathe it in some salt water because that usually tends to, it's good, isn't it, for healing and wounds and things like that. So... I bathe the, the eye in salt water, and then he starts cleaning it himself. Eventually, I found two, and I, I still, to this day, don't know how they got in there, really quite large chunks of bark, I want to say, in his wow. eye. So it did come out. Is he okay now? I think he might have been climbing a tree, yeah. He's fine now, the wood's out, he can see out of both eyes, but yeah, how that got in there is beyond me. To be honest. So, shall we get back to introductions? Mr. Shets are here, but I don't trust Adams. They make up everything. And I'm Mrs. Brown from the chemistry department, and if you got rid of all the empty space in me, I would be smaller than a full stop on a piece of paper. I like that one. Fantastic. So, today what we're going to be doing is answering GCSE questions. We're going to start with some multiple choice questions and then move on to some slightly harder questions, which we'll begin with explain. There's a bit of a twist, however, though. We are going to answer questions from outside our subject specialisms. So we've all selected some questions. Um, I'm intrigued to know how mean we've been with our <laughs> question choices. The multiple choice should be okay, um, but the explain one might be a bit tricky. I actually chose one that I know that uh, many students get incorrect. So I wanted to just see, is this a student thing? Or do adults have trouble with this question too? Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, sorry, I went mean. I think I probably do that in class too. I just went, yeah, all out mean. <laughs> we like a challenge. I'm ready, <laughs> I'm ready. Okay, so starting with biology then um the first multiple choice question is the rhino feeds on plants and rests in the shade during the day which of the following describes the trophic level of a rhino is it a the producer b primary consumer c secondary consumer or d the tertiary consumer uh i am gonna go with b primary consumer Okay. Uh, so when you said trophic level, mm. I had no idea what you're talking about. From the answers, I'm thinking producer is probably something that provides food for something else. So that might be the plants. Correct. Uh, and then primary, the primary, uh, whatever you said it was, yeah. consumer, would be the thing that eats the plants. And then secondary would eat the thing that eats the plants. And then tertiary eats the thing that eats the thing that eats the plants. So uh, I'm guessing it is a primary consumer as well, because it eats the plants. Yeah, B. 
fantastic both correct it is the Woo-hoo. primary consumer well done um mrs brown great description of the producer there they're the plants they absorb the um energy from the sun and convert that into glucose which is used then to to provide energy to the consumers um in terms of trophic level that is the position that the organism occupies in the food chain and the food web so yep b was correct the primary consumer rhinos are herbivores as well actually so Hmm, that's interesting. I would have thought rhinos ate other animals I, just because they're so big. Yeah, and what are the horns for if they don't have to kill things? Is it like antlers for deer where they just kind of fight? Yeah, maybe a bit of fighting and mates. also yeah. yeah, showing off their brute force to find a mate, some sort of um, mating ritual, perhaps. Yeah, brilliant. Shall we try a chemistry question now? Yep. Okay, so uh, scientists are developing sources of energy as alternatives to fuels produced from crude oil. Which of the following reasons for doing this is incorrect? Uh, Part A, crude oil is being used up faster than it is being formed. B, burning hydrocarbons affects global carbon dioxide levels. C, hydrocarbons from crude oil are a source of essential chemicals other than fuels. And D, carbon dioxide produced by burning hydrocarbons is toxic to plants. Hmm. So B, yes, it releases carbon dioxide into the the atmosphere. Um, was sorry, was C the one about you can make useful products from crude oil? Yeah, they're a source of essential chemicals other than fuels. Okay, yes, aren't they used to make plastics and uh, other materials like that? Um, petrochemicals, I want to say. A, I'm going to go D. Because plants use can use carbon dioxide that is released from the burning, combustion of fuels. Okay, Mr. Schatzer? I too am going to go with D. Carbon dioxide is taken in by yeah, plants. Yeah, absolutely. So carbon dioxide produced by burning hydrocarbons is no different to carbon dioxide produced in any other way. And we know that plants uh, use carbon dioxide in photosynthesis. Um, all of the other things are true. So, Miss Wells, you said... Uh, crude oils used to make things like plastics. Yep, that's true. Um, Burning hydrocarbons increases global carbon dioxide levels. True, because um, we know it produces a lot of carbon dioxide. And then crude oil um, is a fossil fuel, so it takes millions and millions of years to to make, to form, and we're using it really, really using it up really, really quickly. So D is correct. I thought you said that you, that you were going to be cruel with these questions. No, so that one actually is easy. You just wait for oh, the next no. one. Oh <laughs> no! Lulling us into a false sense of security. Hooray, it's physics time. Ready? Which one of these has a shorter wavelength than visible light? Is it A, infrared, B, radio waves, C, ultraviolet, or D, microwaves? There's a YouTube video, isn't there, that is a really good way of remembering the order? Radio waves. I think I know it. You know the electromagnetic spectrum song? <laughs> I've never heard this. Miss Wells, would you do a rendition for us? I'm not going to sing it, you know, but I'll, 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 I'll say out the words. So I think it's radio waves. I could add some auto-tune Ooh, if you maybe. want. Maybe. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I'll practice really a beat to it. Um, radio waves, microwaves, infrared radiation. Oh. I'm stumped. Radio waves, microwaves, infrared radiation. Visible light. Ultraviolet. X-rays, gamma rays. So that would suggest okay. shorter than visible light. Oh, um, I'm confused myself now. 
See, the song's no good if, yeah, if, that's... if it doesn't tell you the answer. We can hear the gears moving in your head. We can. I'm, I'm going to go C, I think, because the others are the other side of uh, visible light in my in my song rendition there. So I'm going to go for C. All right. Mrs. Brown. Yeah, I agree. UV is uh, shorter wavelength. So I think um, shorter wavelength is higher frequency. And I think I just remember the, the UV is the higher frequency one. Exactly. I was hoping one of you may, might have known the the acronym that we teach occasionally, which is Real Martians Invade Venus Using X-Ray Guns. Ah. No, I've never heard wow. that. Wow, much better than the song. And also you have to remember which end is which. Like which yes. end is high frequency or low frequency. But that's why Miss Wells had it correct, because she, if she knew them in order, she realized that three of them were on one side of visible light mm. and one was on the other <laughs> side. So yeah, so it had to be shorter that wavelength, higher frequency, more energetic. See, I just mm. remember it with uh, knowing the, the order of the colors and the rainbow and knowing that the blue end is the high energy and UV and then mm -hmm. infrared reminds me of red light. So I just remember mm. it that way. Great. Whatever works. Yeah. I think we're all correct so far. Yeah. We are, two all, brilliant. I think now moving on to the explain questions, these these tough ones oh might, might split us apart a bit, who knows? Okay, we'll go for biology again then. Um, so my explain question, I thought I'd keep it relatively topical. So we're looking at the immune system because we've heard a lot about that in the news with coronavirus. So this five mark explain question is, explain how the immune system protects most people from becoming ill with listeriosis. Is listeriosis something to do with listeria? Yeah. I don't even know um, what listeria is either. <laughs> yeah, that's some kind of bacteria that... It is to do with, it's caused by, yeah, a black listeria bacteria, um, often found in foods like unpasteurized milk okay. and dairy products. So you can catch it from those. That's all I'm okay. saying. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to help loads, but... <laughs> is the listeria part specifically necessary for the question? Like, could it be replaced by some other bacterial infection? It could be replaced. So add one of your choice in there if, if you prefer. So uh, immune system. So uh, antibodies is a word that we've heard quite a lot. So your body has a resistance to certain things because it has, it produces antibodies that, do they like... They, they uh, are able to identify particular bacteria or viruses and then attack them. Um, that's all I really... That, I don't know loads more about antibodies. Uh, but you do have your white blood cells um, and lymphocytes and phagocytes. This is, this is, uh, so I haven't done any biology since GCSE, but I do remember. So phagocytes are like the ones that look like they kind of come up and eat things from your blood blood stream in your bloodstream so they they kind of engulf uh pathogens i don't know if pathogens are related to bacteria or if they're related to viruses yeah totally right i think you've been revising before this session this is not fair no no this is this is as far <laughs> as i can this is really as much as i can remember uh lymphocytes i have no idea what they are except that they must be related to your lymph nodes. I guess your lymph nodes might produce lymphocytes into your bloodstream. I don't know what they do, though. So that's, I don't know, I might be picking up a couple of marks there. 
Okay, that was five out of five, but I think really, yeah, five out of five no. could have been even seven if it was a seven marker. Brilliant, brilliant I answer. Call brilliant answer. Cheating. <laughs> the tricky thing with this is now that I know that she's gotten five marks, can I just repeat her answer and then I get five marks? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Anything you can add? Um, so I'm kind of surprised <laughs> that you um, that I I guess what 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 might not have been necessary was describing. Um, what every single part of the immune system was for. I would have only um, been able to have thought of the antibodies, which because of all the COVID-19 news that I watch, um, have something to do with like proteins that fit uh, the, the outside of a bacteria, uh, kind of like a puzzle piece or a, or a, a piece from a Tetris game. Um, and that prevents them from kind of hijacking your system. But that's more viruses than bacteria. And I know that things used to fight bacteria are not the same as things used to fight viruses. So I would imagine your body is exposed to this in one way or another. Uh, the white blood cells start to kind of attack invaders. I don't remember if it's the white blood cells that produce the antibodies or they're kind of related to it. Yeah, I'll give you two for that, Mr. Schetzer. So, yeah, there's a potential of eight marks here. Mrs. Brown, you got loads of those marks out of the eight. So, yeah, the immune system is there to kill and destroy the Listeria bacteria that's invaded the body. Um, and as you said, Mrs. Brown, there are other methods that can protect you from bacteria, such as the stomach acid, um, hydrochloric acid that's found in the stomach. But because we're talking about the immune system specifically, then we definitely need to talk about white blood cells. So white blood cells is another mark. And then naming two types of white blood cells, such as phagocytes and lymphocytes, can pick up another two marks. Now it's the phagocytes that are the ones that um, come around and engulf the bacteria. So it looks like they're sort of eating these bacteria. Um, and then the bacteria will get broken down in the phagocyte into harmful um, bits that are then just released from the phagocyte into the body. The lymphocytes are the white blood cells that produce the antibodies. And Mr. Schetzer, you were talking about how these fit onto the bacteria. So it is a bit like a puzzle piece and the bacteria will have a very specific antigen on its surface. Um, and the antibody will have a complementary shape to that antigen. So it will lock onto the antigen and then destroy the, the bacteria. All the antibodies, when they lock on to the antigens, can actually flag over more phagocytes. And then you get a whole army of phagocytes coming along and engulfing and destroying these bacteria. The final mark would come from talking about memory cells. So once the bacteria has been destroyed, your body's left with memory cells, which if they come across a listeria bacteria again, they'll know exactly the right shape antibody to produce and they'll churn out masses of these antibodies at a really really fast rate so if you do get infected again you actually won't feel as ill or you won't even notice that you've, you've had an infection such as listeria bacteria in your body because this secondary immune response is really really rapid and and fast so brilliant well i am now in last place but that's okay i have no shame there's no shame in learning exactly admitting what you don't know <laughs> Right, we ready for some chemistry? Bring it on. 
iodine and graphite crystals both contain covalent bonds, and yet the physical properties of their crystals are very different. For iodine and graphite, state and explain the differences in their melting points and in their electrical conductivities. Okay, now now I now I understand the cruelty. <laughs> Who wants to go first? Electricity. You can do electricity. Well, so graphite is carbon with four valence electrons, um, and yep. two electron shells. If that makes any difference. No, but it is true. Iodine, as how as how we say it on the other side of the world, um, is in uh, the halogens group with seven valence electrons. Yep, very good. I forget which which um, row it's in. Period. Fluorine, chlorine, bromine, iodine. So that's the fourth. So it's got four electron shells? So it's actually five because hydrogen and helium are in their own Oh, yeah, bed. that's true. And comparing their melting points. Yeah. Well, I, I know that uh, carbon is amongst the highest melting and boiling point uh, substance on the periodic table. I don't think I can explain mm-hmm. why that is with regard to the covalent bonds. Um, I also remember that iodine is diatomic, so it kind of, it can exist as yeah, I2. Yeah, that's true, very good. Uh, whereas carbon can be, yep. I mean, even in the graphite form where they're kind of in their, um, their sheets that kind of slide, uh, slide off of each other. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, yeah. I very don't, good, very I don't good. Yeah. Admittedly, know how that connects to melting points. We played around in the physics department with the idea of these circuits where instead of wires, you can connect components with pencil lead, which is graphite. So I remember it is a conductor, but I would figure if it has four valence electrons versus seven, I would have imagined that uh, iodine yeah, yeah, would be great. a better conductor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, there's a few pieces missing, but that's that's what I'm going to go for. Miss um, Wells, what do you think? Okay, um, so what, what can I add to that? Um, yeah, so graphite made up of sheets of carbon. Isn't there a free electron within those sheets? Free electrons that surround the sheets? Or am I thinking me- metallic good. bonding? I'm, I'm no, sure no, a sea of yeah. delocalized, can I call it that? Or is that more me- metallic? Yeah, very good. So no, no, that's very nice language. Delocalized electrons, yeah. So I'm going to say, um, so graphite can conduct electricity, definitely because of those um, electrons. Yeah. Iodine can that conduct electricity? Uh, no, because so there's seven electrons in the outer shell. Uh, covalent, so they're share, they're sharing. That's right, isn't it? Sharing. Very good. Two yeah, electrons. Yeah, yeah. So there's no spare electrons. electrons. So yeah. current, and this is probably my physics. This might not be very good, Mr. Schetzer, but the electrons would normally carry the charge. So if they're kind of locked in that covalent bond, then they can't carry the charge. So I'm going to say iodine doesn't conduct electricity. Um, and the last, so I mean, melting point. So covalent bonds are strong bonds, aren't they? So I'm going to say the the uh, melting point for iodine is very very high. Uh, graphite. Oh, let's go low. Although that is a covalent bond as well. They're both high melting points. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> not not a, as great description <laughs> as my electricity one. <laughs> That's what I'd put. Um, it was, that was pretty good. And you had some good key terms in there. Um, so I would say, Mr. Schetzer, I'll give you two. 
and Miss Wells, I think you can have three because you had that. You're a bit better on the electrical conductivity. Um, so there were plenty of things that you could say to pick up marks. You just need to say five of the things. Um, I think, Mr. Shetzer, you made you said loads of really good stuff about the atomic structure of iodine and graphite, but that's kind of the classic mistake that students make. So atomic structure is all to do with chemical reactivity, whereas here we're talking about physical properties. So it's not necessarily going to be um, as relevant. Uh, so the first the starting point is looking at their structures. Uh, Miss Wells correctly said um, iodine is made of uh, covalent molecules. I think Mr. Shetzer, you said that too, that it's um, I2 molecules. And that means that you've got these separate entities where you've got a strong covalent bond holding the two atoms together in the molecule, but then there's nothing holding the molecules together. So there are only very weak, what we call intermolecular forces between those molecules. And so iodine has um, a low melting point. It doesn't take much energy to overcome those intermolecular forces. Whereas graphite, you both correctly talked about the sheets of graphite. You've got strong covalent bonds going in um, through those sheets. And so in order to, to break it into a liquid, you've got to break those bonds and that takes lots and lots of energy. So Mr. Shetsu, you're absolutely right. Graphite has got one of the highest uh, melting points of elements around. Um, in terms of electrical conductivity, uh, Miss Wells, absolutely right on the delocalized electrons. Uh, Mr. Shetsu, you were nearly there. So carbon's got four outer shell electrons, as you said. But in, within the layers, each carbon is actually only bonded to three others. So there's a spare um, outer shell electron for each carbon atom, and that becomes delocalized. And so because it can move throughout the structure and a current is just moving charge, um, you therefore have uh, an electrical con conductor for graphite. Whereas iodine, Miss Shetzer, you, uh, sorry, Miss Wells, you got this right. Um, iodine, the electrons are involved in bonding, so they're not able to move around freely. So there's no charges, the molecules themselves are neutral. And so no moving charge means it can't conduct electricity. Good job though, lots of, lots of the basics were there. So the moral of the story with that question was, don't just throw whatever you know about the elements onto your answer and hope for the best. Yeah, so it's, yeah, chemistry, there's lots you can work out from the periodic table, but it's not all about the periodic table and atomic structure. All right, is it time for revenge? Yeah, I'm worried about this one. <laughs> Very worried. Have you, have you chosen a particularly tough question after those... Well, I ended up choosing ones that I know tend to appear in end-of-year exams, uh, whether they be official or not. I have seen them quite frequently uh, in past papers. Sorry, Miss Wells, it's a forced question. But here we go. Explain in terms of forces why a falling object eventually reaches a maximum speed. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. And you can have one bonus point too, if you can tell me what the name of that maximum speed is. <laughs> Who wants to be punished first? I mean, I'm happy to go first. I did suspect it might be a force question. <laughs> right, which worries me. So, okay. Uh, why a falling object eventually reaches a maximum speed. So this is, so the beginning acceleration is greater and then eventually, is that right? It will reach constant speed. Uh, I can't. I can't really tell you till you're finished. You can't tell me. <laughs> okay. Um, so there's lots of forces that'll be working on the falling object. Gra uh, gravitational potential at the beginning. 
I'm just gonna have something to do with it. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of say a lot of keywords and hope that's gonna give me a couple of marks. So <laughs> okay. gravitational potential at the beginning, um kinetic energy. That's not a force, is it? This is awful. <laughs> no, it's not a force. Uh oh goodness. Uh air resistance going in the opposite direction. Hmm. All right. Mrs. Brown. Or do you know, um, actually, do you know what the name of the maximum speed is? Because then you can at least get the maximum uh, point. Terminal velocity? Something to do with it? Yeah. All right. So you each get the extra bonus point because Mrs. Brown said that before. Oh, okay. And Mrs. Brown, what do you think? Um, okay. So I think that when, so you're holding the object high up and initially you're, the first, the force pulling it down is its weight, and um, the force is proportional to the acceleration downwards. Is that right? Uh, F equals ma. I don't know if that. Yeah. As as the object speeds up because it's accelerating, I think that affects the air resistance. So you can't. There can't be drag if it's still. But as it gets quicker and quick, quicker, the drag increases until so for it to be going at constant speed the resultant force has to be zero so there's no acceleration and therefore the drag acting upwards must be equal to the weight acting downwards and so as long as so as it accelerates drag increases until you reach the point where the weight and the drag force are equal and so it reaches its terminal velocity and then that terminal velocity would depend on i guess the weight and something with a smaller weight would have a oh hang on now I've got myself in a twist. Uh oh no well no so it would also depend on its surface area I guess and the size how how quickly the drag increased. There's probably an equation that relates drag to velocity. Uh I don't know if they do it in A level but in GCSE the equation is left out entirely. Okay. They only have to be able to explain those things. Um so Miss Wells you can have one <laughs> <laughs> that's um, very generous thank pl you well plus the bo plus the bonus point so that's uh, that's two um and mrs brown wow that was <laughs> you got all of it you got everything uh so basically um one of the things that tends to trip people up which i don't necessarily agree with but they that's the way at excel likes to do things is when you talk about an individual object the forces acting on it while it's uh as it's falling there will be two of them there will be its own weight and air resistance or drag or friction. When something falls, its speed increases, or you could say it, it accelerates. The longer you let something fall for, the faster its speed is. But also, as Mrs. Brown pointed out, the size of the drag force, the air resistance or friction, depends on how fast it's moving. So if you're cycling, even when it's not windy outside, if you cycle really quickly, you feel the friction of the air smashing into you as you have to push it out of the way as you move. So eventually, the forces balance out, or as Mrs. Brown said, they have a resultant force of zero. And when you have an upwards force that is equal and opposite to the downwards force, then the speed or velocity of the object doesn't change anymore. And so you will reach a maximum speed. And... Um, I think Mrs. Brown is already in the lead, but I think she she deserves an extra uh, possible extra credit bonus point because she mentioned a few things about what determines terminal velocity. So there are things like what fluid you're falling through. 
as well as the shape of the object when people skydive, for example. So I think the theme of our episode so far has been Mrs. Brown knows <laughs> a lot about everything. And, no, it's not true. And I don't. <laughs> no, I think you've just happened to pick things I know about. I think that this must have been part of your job interview for <laughs> head of science, right? Yeah, yeah, you have to know everything about everything. <laughs> no. No, I always like physics. Biology slightly less so. I think Miss Wells could easily have caught me out on the biology. But she I was lucky. I was lucky. Well, you remembered some of those fancy words that yeah, I didn't. I think I was lucky there. But on a terminal velocity, I heard once um something like you could drop an ant from a really high building or something and it wouldn't die because its terminal velocity is very would be very low. Is that is that true? Is and also is that why like cats can jump for off things quite high and not seem to injure themselves is there probably not as far as insects not really being damaged by falling their terminal velocity isn't fairly fast but also um their the impact force of them hitting the ground is uh, i don't know if it's proportional or it's related to um how heavy the insects are so something light that falls doesn't really have that much energy in there in the first place also, many insects have, like, their hard outer shells. Um, but, yeah, I always used to think of that. Like, you know, an ant will flick it off of a table. Yeah, it would it be, seems... like, the equivalent of a human, you know, jumping off a tall building. And we would be splattered on the pavement. Yeah. But a ant just well, goes, absolutely oh, fine. I'm yeah. over here now. And, Miss Wells, one of the things that you... Uh, uh, classic um, confusion was you talked about... Uh, gravitational potential energy, yeah, uh, which is not a force. Would yeah, that be a common tricky. mistake that students would make? Talk, starting talking about energy changes rather than forces. So we teach this in year nine, along with other uh, forces topics, and I find that it's very difficult for students and well, teachers too, myself especially, to visualize and to kind of simulate in your brain that the rate at which the object is accelerating as it falls is non-linear. It is speeding up, but the rate at which it's speeding up is not constant. And that's especially tricky because every other GCSE question involves linear rates. So hopefully that made sense in any possible way. there in Mrs. Brown. Well done, Mrs. Brown. Fantastic performance oh, across thanks. all three <laughs> sciences. That's brilliant. So we thought we'd end this week's Emmanuel Science podcast, keeping on the theme of exam questions. And we're going to each give you a piece of advice, which we think is really useful for GCSE exams. Before you start writing your question, have a look at the number of marks available. So if it's a three mark question, you've really got to make sure that you're making three different and distinct points to answer that question yeah i totally agree um with that but um in chemistry i would say one of the biggest difficulties students have is with the scientific vocabulary so my tip would be make sure you really know the vocabulary you're supposed to use back to front because if you use the wrong term you may well just get zero marks and nobody wants that of course uh in my opinion the most powerful thing that you can do is to do past paper questions but don't do them first. 
I know many people tend to start off with past paper questions. Let's see how much I remember. Let's be fair, you're in school for two and a half years before you do proper GCSE exams. Uh, I don't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning, so I would be surprised if students were able to pull from the depths of their mind, clear the cobwebs, and find all of the stuff that they learned half a year, one year, two, two and a half years ago. I think that's kind of ridiculous. So instead, I think your time would be better spent saving the past paper questions for last once you've gotten the theory, the equations, the concepts, all of that into your brain, then you can accurately show how much you know. And only then, in my opinion at least, should you be doing past paper questions. Some teachers disagree and would rather people do past paper questions all the time, and that is why these are just kind of personal advice. That's uh, my thoughts. Feel free to disagree. Yeah, I totally agree. I wouldn't, I think it's important to do past paper practice. It definitely shouldn't be left out, but I think it's kind of the honing your your skills at the end rather than, and you, and you could do it as you revise topics and, and do some past paper questions on them. But yeah, I agree. I wouldn't tackle them before you are confident that you understand. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Emmanuel Science Podcast. As ever, if you would like to contribute to the podcast or feature on the podcast, then please do give myself, Mr. Schetzer or Mrs. Brown an email. See you next week. Bye. Until next time. I'm Mr. Milne, the headmaster of Emmanuel. Thank you for listening to our science podcast. Emmanuel is a school located in southwest London and it was founded in 1594 and it now sits in the top 50 for co-ed schools in the whole country. For further information, please visit our website at emmanuel.org.uk.